Hello everyone, uh, welcome back to the fourth episode of Wake Up Call. This episode is going to be structured a bit differently since we have a co-host um, and we'll be talking about a very controversial topic, I think, that is North Korea. Um, we're all just, I guess, interested in it. We're not experts, so we're learning along with you guys. And uh, yeah, for the episode, I invited my dear friend, also a debater, um, a person who has a lot of knowledge on so many things in the world and that I aspire. Uh, so yeah, Noyus, you might want to expand on your introduction a bit. Okay, um, so hi, I'm Noyus. I really don't know, I, I, I don't know how to introduce myself so it really pertains to the topic, um, but I guess I don't know, I have been interested in socialist theory and history for a long time. So I guess uh, just simply it puts me in a different place uh, the way I try to look at countries such as like the DPRK or North Korea, whatever. Um, so I guess that's why like I was invited and the, the, the sort of points I, I, I'd like to make. Um, but yeah. Yeah, thanks for agreeing to come on. Um, I mean, for our listeners. Like, Noyes, I mean, clearly you have some knowledge about North Korea that, that both of us, uh, both Milda and I don't have. Do you want to um, give basically a, a brief history um, of North Korea and how, how the Korean peninsula uh, became so divided? Um, okay, yeah. Uh, once again, so I'm not an expert. I'm not really educated in the history of North Korea, but I can give you some broad strokes and sort of also ideas that I take away from Korean history. Um, so to get it out of the way, Korea is like a thousand years old, uh, has been existing as a country, as like, a, and uh, it has been really unfortunate in how it has been sort of geographically placed because it has always been at the sort of place where uh, empires and like really significant uh, sort of powers meet um, because it has been dominated by China for a really long time, like in not in the modern era. So perhaps it's also not as relevant, but it's certainly also culturally relevant in, in, in Korea to some degree, as I understand. Um, but uh, and also just being at the footstep of like the eastern uh, part of Russia and uh, then like uh, really to the west of Japan and also the United States always trying to like uh, homogenize itself in the Asia Pacific region and also like through its domination of Japan right now and South Korea also like okay then we'll maybe get into the wars you know and whatever um, so Korea was formally colonized I think where we should start in the like 20th century in the 1910s uh, uh, by Japan and it was colonized for a really long time and, and, and during that colonization it was like the Korean Political organizations were brutally suppressed. I mean, uh, food exports were all like going to Japan. So like most of the rice that was being produced in Korea was actually eaten in Japan by Japanese people. So, and, and, but most of that rice was also produced by the Korean workers there, you know. Um, and so we also had problems with food shortages, you know, the destruction of cultures, like people being sent away to work. A lot of the working class in Japan then became Korean because they were sort of forcefully migrated there to do industrial labor and etc. So it was really sort of um, bled, you know, uh, uh, by the Japanese. And when you talk to a lot of uh, Korean people, like they will tell you about how terrible the things that um, the Japanese did to them are. Like not, I mean, you, you talked a lot about extensively about the economic um, damage that was caused by Japanese policy. But additionally, just like a lot of the human rights abuses, the um, the torture, the experimentation, and, and and things like that. I mean, uh, yeah, Japan was definitely a, a, a cruel imperial force in, in the Korean Peninsula at that point in time. Sorry, I just wanted to interject with that. But go ahead, you can you can continue what you were what you were uh, saying about the the economic segregation and things like that. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. And that's very much true. And there like, uh, have been many, many crimes committed in the Korean Peninsula, you know, uh, also by the Americans, also by the South Korean puppet state, and also, unfortunately, by the North Korean government as well, you know. And it is the sort of region which is plagued uh, by a lot of these, like, misfortunate uh, things. Um, 
After 1945, the United States, you know, defeated Japan, then it took over Japanese administration. And so it also, like, put its troops in South Korea, like, in, not in South Korea, in the southern parts of Korea. And, did, like, uh, during the provisions after the Second World War, you know, the Soviet Union and the uh, U.S. divided them into, like, influence zones or whatever. And so you had these sort of one country, two states established, um... Yeah, um, and then I guess like the way, I, the the thing I would like to emphasize, uh, as well is that for those you know, people who were forming the resistance at the end of the war uh, against the Japanese with the Soviets and with the Chinese as well, and also those who were um, uh, generally like forming uh, political independence ideas in Korea at that time, the sort of thing that happens is that they also perceive and they realize that the United States is an imperial force and power, uh, which is also like setting its foot up like in their country. So I think this is like really where the main tension and where the friction happened on on why the war really started. Um, And then later we really saw like that it was kind of proven through because the United States like really made it like one of their main missions to like stop the communists in Korea and they used like um, the United Nations, which they recently had created and like force all of these other countries, militaries in and uh, like lots and lots of damage and destruction. Like the United States bombed, put like, uh, uh, like bombed more there, uh, like the, like the bombs itself, like counted, uh, were much more there, there than throughout the entire period in the World War II, you know, what they bombed on Japan and, uh, and Germany. Um, so it was quite an effort and it did cause quite a bit of destruction. Perhaps I think it's, it's most important what, uh, what's happening now, I guess, and, and how the media talks about North Korea nowadays. But it's also important to kind of understand how did, uh, how did it become the Democratic Republic uh, the Demo- Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Like, could you talk a bit more about the relationship between the citizens of North Korea and like the people in power? Because I think we hear a lot about how they have no choice and how they hate their leaders and stuff like that. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, well, this is like really a complicated question now because it also puts together a historical question inside of it and the like how we are to understand it now and how the media talks about it now. Because I really think these are two significantly different questions. But uh, I, first of all, maybe I would like to say that like the DPRK is by no means like no any sort of socialist utopia or that it is uh, a sort of a country we should all aspire to be like. Uh, I think there are like many different things which make it uh, really worrying about how like the the, the 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 society has been constructed, but generally on the idea of communism uh, being popular in Korea and the establishment of the DPRK, uh, there were many different like uh, groups uh, and uh, fighters which were the main political and military force at the time, especially like in the north, that were fighting actively against the Japanese occupiers, especially at the point that they were like, you know, losing during World War II. So already this is like a sort of similar situation as we might have in Yugoslavia, like in this, after the Second World War, if we like think about it in historical parallel ways, where basically um, there is no people who would run a state. There is no real political organization in the country. There is no real... Uh, cohesive like unit there you know uh, but it's mostly the communists who are establishing themselves there and so after they were like liberated from the Japanese it it just like makes sense that it establishes itself from these fighters from the people who supported them and it, there were like a lot of like once again I, I'm like much more familiar with the history of Vietnam in this so maybe I'm like now putting myself off because then uh, I, I'm attributing similarities, which perhaps there aren't. But like either way, you no, know, I think there were lots of people who were just generally supporting the idea and that movement, which was actively f- like fighting against the occupiers. So yeah, I guess I guess just I would like to point out how it just makes sense that there was a communist state built there, and it just makes sense that the people supported it. And I think that the people supported it for quite some time. I f- like uh, as to like also into the history of like when it became the sort of very unitary personality cult 
oriented Kimil Songist like whatever state uh, it, it, it this mostly happened like in the like in the 60s and 70s so also you had the period like during the Korean War and then a bit after after the Korean War it was like very different developments that the state could have gone to but it's it's uh, once again like complicated forgive me if this sounds a little cringe but I, when you're talking about North Korea and about it being basically a people's revolt and the idea that this Marxist communist policies were widely supported by the population and they envisioned that and eventually leading to the totalitarian cult of personality, uh, elite dominated state that it is today. It reminds me a lot of Orwell's Animal Farm, like uh, something that started off with 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 right intentions and popular support and then eventually led to a bunch of pigs at the top uh, controlling everything, saying that they're the smartest, they know the best, they're literally God. Okay, I sort of like, I like this question because now I would like to get into the second part of also what like Mila perhaps asked me like on the, uh, like more how the media talks about how to understand it now. So I had a lot of these points written down. Okay, so you say it's like animal farm and it's, uh, totalitarian state. Um, I, I I don't really like the term totalitarian, and maybe this will also get at at what I am trying to say uh, at the end of the day, um, because it I think really abstracts. Because I think totalitarian, you know, the term itself it evokes a sort of emotion and an image, which really abstracts like from uh, the, the the actual realities. Because often we use the totalitarian as a term to like define many different states and also sometimes contra contradictory systems, you know? So we define uh, often the totalitarian systems of Hitler and Stalin, but like the Nazi Germany was a fundamentally different state from the USSR and, and, and how it functioned and like how, what, what was like even there and whatever. Um, and So what but, term would you prefer for, for describing North Korea? Um, for describing North Korea? Oh, I don't know. I think, I think mostly we must understand it as a nationalist, anti-imperialist state, which also has, uh, does have like a sort of dictatorship and, and cult of personality. But I think it's also important to recognize the sort of old style um, planned economy that they still sort of have, which also like ensures certain liberties which are not ensured in different sort of systems of economic functioning and are not even like insured in like places like South Korea as well. Um, so, so I guess, because I think these are all important factors when we like try to define a state, right? So, 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 so these are points maybe I would like to bring up. I, I don't think there's just like terms, which uh, once again, like, like we can just ascribe to different countries and like bring them under these different umbrellas and say it's all the same. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Uh, sorry, I, I I did I did cut you off there in 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 saying what you're saying. Do you want to respond to the the, the sort of idea of the animal farm? Because I think that is a really nice transition into the current North Korea discussion. I want to respond to the idea. Okay, so perhaps I'm going to be now like self-contradicting myself in the sort of actions I perform and the rhetoric I espouse. Because the main thesis I sort of have uh, and the idea I would like to espouse is that we perhaps shouldn't be talking about North Korea as much as we are. And uh, sort of that North Korea has become this like... Um, media spectacle on which we also ascribe many different like like political realities and so i'll get into this like um now okay uh so i i just wrote down a couple of words of like how we usually like you know hear and see about north korea so it's like it's usually like shock you know it's like very shocking content which is also like very what, what makes it so appealing you know that you can be like shocked in such a way to find out about this like a state that is like this. This is especially true for like, I think people like generally Westerners who imagine themselves in living these like, sh like perfect liberal democracies, which is like the free world, the best way of governance, you know, and to sort of look at this backwards sort of like really, as you say, like Orwellian, you know, sort of entirely dystopian, entirely shadowy sort of place. Um, and, and, and a lot of this tends to be emphasized. And I think it also, like, uh, with this, it comes sort of the idea of this, like, stranger things, you know, shadow world, which is the North Korea. I think many times, uh, like, the, the things, like, which are ascribed to North Korea as being the primary violations of, like, uh, human rights and, like, of having these, like, totalitarian things is usually really 
like projections and reflections uh, uh, of what is also sort of happening in our societies as well. Uh, but but, but they are also like, they allow us to, you know, uh, think of it uh, in a way that we are like progressed from this and we are better than this while like, you know, hiding it in our own homes. Okay, I think- Do you want to dig a little really, bit deeper? Sorry, sorry, go ahead. But I, I was just going to ask just a little bit deeper on those, on what those projections of our society are. Okay. Um, um, I don't know if we, okay, wait, maybe I, I, I want to make a few different points and then, we can talk about this. Um, yeah, because, well, well, okay, there was this, like, sort of, I think, uh, uh, there is this movie, where this, like, uh, also very interesting uh, band from Slovenia went to North Korea to do a concert. Um, I don't remember their name at the tip of my tongue. And, like, Zizek was commenting on it, and he was also, like, saying that it was interesting, you know, that they showed a sort of totalitarianism of the, you know, North Korea, which really, like, you know, shows the totalitarianism of the everyday, you know, and the totalitarianism of, like... Um, what surrounds us, but it's uh, uh, but these are like more also like philosophical points. It's uh, it's not easy. It's 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 easy to recognize the differences, like how the society is structured. Like of course it is the North Korea state is sort of um, different. Um, but also I'd like to talk about which I think is uh, sort of important to engage on, um, uh, and and I think this would be accurate for the like Instagram audience as well. That North Korea also has become this uh, meme, you know, as well. I think this is really important that we that we start, sort of actively you know make fun of it. It's like just it, like the 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 Seth Rogen made like a comedy film, like the interview where they just go and kill, you know, uh, the North Korean leader. Which like really, when you think about it, like wh wh where does this like come from, you know? Like how come we have comedy movies produced in the United States, like actively showing killing off other states like like sovereign legitimate internationally recognized leaders or whatever you know and uh, and like how, like why, why is it north korea which is getting this treatment and i think this really gets at the sort of sensualization that we have of it and i think this really really interplays into the uh, itself like profit motivated liberal media that media that we have because it is like very interesting and very like fascinating shocking and uh, and easy to tell a story about north korea we had like a lot of misreporting about this a lot of misinformation as well like how the north koreans like they are so wacky they discovered a unicorn you know they have said this themselves this was like reported by fox news and stuff like this they said that you know North Koreans say that they invented the hamburger. The North Koreans say that uh, they only allow like nine haircuts uh, that are, uh, are done and also all of this. Uh, and a lot of like, you know, I think on YouTube, there are like, like clickbait videos which are made. I think there are like listicles, you know, of like these really pop media uh, information sources, which just sort of like espouse these sort of oh wacky and strange things, which we can tell about the country. Um, and I think this really like fetishizes and sort of distances us from the really like, uh, I don't know, from, from, from what, what, what I could, it's a country of 24 people, million, of 24 million people living there, you know? And I think there is a significant like emphasis that we must, must put it like within this like country with 24 million people, they are like living just regular daily lives as well, you know? And we never get this image from like the Western media. All we get is this like, like fantasy world, this like, this, uh, uh, like, as you say, Orwellian dystopia, which also like with very many like wacky characteristics, I would say, like uh, that, that would be easy to make fun of, that would be easy to, to shock and etc. Um, which then again, like, I don't want to go on the whataboutism like conversation as well, but I think there is a significant factor there that it's also the Cold War uh, context and that it is like a, so, a self-described socialist state and it allies itself with anti-US interests as well. But there are like countries like Turkmenistan, which also have like very much these sort of like dictatorships with cults of personality with like, like uh, similar historical contexts as well, but are not like uh, uh, outwardly socialist or whatever. Or like we don't talk about them. We don't tend to talk about them in the sort of same ways that we do about North Korea. And we don't tend to put so much focus on it, you know. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I, I wanted to add two points actually to this on like the perceptions of North Korea. Because you talked about um, Squid Game. But right now, I'm not sure if you've seen Money Heist. But there's a new edition of Money Heist, Money Heist Korea. Which is quite interesting because it paints a picture of like a unified Korea. And it even talks about how North Korean worker migration to South Korea leads to like crime and exploitation, which I think is really interesting and which kind of challenges the narratives that we see in traditional media. 
But secondly, I think it's not only about like how North Korea is a country of like memes and sensational sensations that are so like shocking, but also how 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 North Korean defectors such as a very popular book author and YouTuber Yeonmi Park, she she I think you know became rich because of how she described North Korea to be uh, a hell uh, and and used the most shocking words whenever she went to interviews. But the reality is that she's being paid by the American government. Okay, to add on this, she's not really being paid by the American government. I I I'd like now to yes make a point of this. Uh, I I think the North Korea yes because. North Korea is a country which we have very little information about because it's very closed off. And most of the information that we can actually viably get are from defectors. But the thing that also happens with defectors, uh, which is often uh, like then problematic. Uh, once again, I would like to notice and point out also how Yeonmi Park and many different uh, like defectors which are most culturally significant, which have appeared most in news media and etc., tend to be uh, very young tend to be born in the 1990s or a bit afterwards. I think this is very important because after the Soviet Union had fell and the economic structure, which North Korea had attached itself to and which basically supported North Korea, uh, uh, fell apart and just got destroyed. Um, And so this really also destroyed North Korean economy. And then there was a period of climate catastrophes as well with... uh, uh, um, Floods coming in, coming in, which disrupted food supply for the country, which really made it a very difficult period. And that was really a period when a lot of people migrated or like defected from North Korea. I, I also don't always like to use the term defector because a lot of people also like migrated away from North Korea or like like moved to China and, and, and all of this. And, and also how we use this language also sort of implies certain things, I guess. This also plays into the dystopia conversation or whatever. But... Uh, this is one of the points I would like to make. So these are the people who are really, like, they really, really did suffer and it was really a bad time in North Korea. But also the image that we get from them is very particular to that time period. And the image is also not really full of the, like, historical context and also doesn't really inform us on what's happening in the current moment fully. The mo- I, I'd, I'd really like to now just plug a movie which I was, watched yesterday and, like, which really, like, helps... I think understands a really really good movie. Um, it's like called the Propaganda Game. It was released in two thousand fifteen of this uh, Brazilian or Spanish uh, journalist. I don't remember. Just going to North Korea, and then he's also like playing a lot of images of m- news reports and interviews, like interspliced one together with one together. And like he says, like I have no sort of points to make. I just want to say we are all part of this propaganda game, you know. And yeah, I think there are like these big like uh, interests. Uh, interest like like uh, uh, groups uh, of people who have certain interests who want you know the certain narratives about North Korea that we have right now and I do believe it sort of influences some of the discourse about the defectors and many of them who talk and whatever and there are also like a plethora of them and there have been like also like I, uh, uh, many different uh, things that have been said by them sometimes contradictory and whatever so um Yes, on the defectors, I had to say this. Now, I'm I'm a big fan of of criticizing the news media for their sensationalization, and and I and I do agree that there is definitely some element of it. But I mean, I'm I'm going to give them a little bit of a break here because, I mean, the UN describes North Korea's human rights violations as, as follows: uh, the gravity, scale, and nature of these violations reveal a state that does not have any parallel in the contemporary world effectively calling them the worst violator of human rights that exists right now. Uh, Amnesty, Human Rights Watch rather, calls them some, quote unquote, some of the world's most brutalized people. And um, Amnesty International estimates that there's around 200,000 political prisoners held in prison camps all around the country. Again, you, you look at their crackdowns on religious freedoms. At one point, North Korea had 60 uh, sorry, rather, 400 uh, Buddhist temples and monasteries, and now they have 60. Uh, and those 60 are basically sort of run by uh, quasi-monks that are appointed by the state. And uh, defectors have sort of said that, you know, there's no there's no worship that occurs at these temples. They sort of just 
keep them around as tourist attractions to show tourists that, oh, look, we actually uh, do uh, celebrate religious freedom. 1,600 monks were killed in the 1950s under their crackdown on religious persecution. You talk a lot about external forces such as climate and and uh, other, you know, bad actors that were sort of controlling North Korea, but no one made them do this. This was this was their own fault. And I don't think that we can separate the North Korean economy, I mean, as problematic as I think that is, that's a, it's a different discussion, from the fact that they're basically doing this um, on themselves. Like, North Korean citizens, they don't get to freely travel around the country. They barely get to travel abroad. Only the ruling political elite do. Only the uh, political elite can own and and lease vehicles. And again, of course, all of this is is given by defectors. This is how you get most of this testimony. But I mean, if North Korea was actually, uh, you know, not committing these human rights violations, why wouldn't they allow UN human rights inspectors into their country? Um, I, I especially would like to talk about the the religious persecution because. In, in the 1950s, when they had this big crackdown on religion, because, you know, for, for a government like, like the Kim dynasty, you, you can't have religion around at the same time as having this cult of personality. All non-foreign Catholic priests were executed. Basically, all, like, Korean Catholic priests were executed, and all Protestant leaders who did not renounce their um, faith were basically purged as American spies. And the reason I'm listing off all these plethora of human rights violations is because I, I don't think that your that your point about sensationalism holds much water in the face of these human rights violations. Like, of course, like we give a lot of stupid attention to like, oh, North Koreans can only have this haircut. North Koreans can, you know, only watch these movies. That's not as important as the active persecution and subjugation of their of their people. And I think that is what people need to focus more on. The fact that an estimated 60%, we don't actually know, uh, 60% of North Koreans live in abject poverty is not exactly a crying endorsement of, of their economic um, model. And my point is this. Yes, we talk a little bit more about this um, weird, wacky country in the Korean peninsula than we ought to. But at the same time, I don't think that detracts from the fact that they are objectively one of the worst historical regimes in terms of civil liberties, in terms of human rights that has ever existed. Uh, yeah, I mean, you put a lot out there now, and I think it's like a good point that you're trying to make. But um, I guess I, I guess I'll make some of the like some following critiques. Um, I don't I don't think. The sort of offenses and crimes that have been committed in North Korea are really unique to that state and that society. I believe it is a sort of criminal state, of course, but most states tend to be. Uh, like, put it, like, I think, I, I, once again, I would really like to recommend the film The Propaganda Game. Uh, I think it really shows the way, like, we also use our language to talk about, the, use how we can use different language to talk about the states in the given context, um, which then like paint a completely different image. As to like the exact information you know that you also provide, I think as as like I've uh, already said, it's really it really is a closed off country, and we really tend to know very little about it. And I do think that reports tend to reports also tend to be exaggerated, and they have been known to be exaggerated by like these groups also like Human Rights Watch, uh, and Amnesty International, and whatever. But I mean, th it doesn't take away from the fact that of course, like you know, I think they certainly severe restrictions on the civil liberties exist in North Korea. Um, as to like, does it take away from the like? This is not also like yeah. I I also wanted to try to implicitly sort of make this point. Uh, throughout the the way I've been talking, I, I don't think it really takes away um, fundamentally uh, in any way from like how we should approach like you know the country as to like like what are the like what are the problems and what do 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 we need to look solutions for because I think then the, we really need to look at questions of like unification of the Koreas um, and then like also like what the U.S. 
like role in that and I think this is really really significant which is like a really important external factor in how we should like even approach dealing with that country because it's not going to like change internally or whatever so um yes I, I, I don't know I mean just to push back on your point that that they're not unique I think that that was throughout my my sort of long uh, rambling of various stats and figures I think my my point is that it is unique I mean, the fact is, it is the least democratic country on earth, uh, according to the Economist, which I guess is a source that you might take that you might take but, issue with. No, I, I I don't take issue exactly with the source. I would take issue with like, but how would you define you know this democracy? Like, how do they ask the questions? How it does it go? Um, like, it, I, I I think these are metrics which are not very useful, <laughs> and I think these are metrics which are also like sort of abstractions. Okay, well, so, I mean, what I would say that the least democratic country in the world would mean that the citizens have the least say in how their government runs and it works the other way around. And I mean, I, I know there's other countries that are that are like that. Um, and and I, I fully agree that North Korea is not the only country in the world that commits human rights violations, but they're the only one that commits them to the extent that they do. And they're the only ones that have taken this authoritarianism as far as as they do. This is sort of the most extreme example of, um, sorry to use a term that, that you know, has, has been contested as bad, but like a, of, of a totalitarian government that basically has control like on on, on every aspect of the movement. For example, like I, I have a friend that, that, that visited North Korea and he's he's going to be doing a little bit, little segments, like he's traveling right now. So uh, he's had a tough time recording this, but he's going to do a little segment um, later on in the podcast, but he basically told me about how, like, look, when you go to North Korea, they tell you what you can take photos of, they tell you what you can, which direction you can look at, they tell you which streets you can go on, which streets you can't go on, and you have to be in the presence of a tour guide at all times. Like, which other country in the world is like this? I visited China, which is another example of a, of a extremely authoritarian country, and it's not like that at all. I mean, sure. <laughs> I, I, I understand all of these points, but still, I don't know. I think there might be just fundamental disagreements here, and and I really don't have like I think the capacity right now to 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 take you on on this because I'm not like so statistically and empirically like uh, involved in like 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 uh, trying to understand North Korea. I I, I would still uh, would like to make the point that even like okay. It's it's not you know unique, uh, but it's also like unique as you say. Perhaps it's the worst one out there. I don't know. Perhaps it may be true. I I think as to the like the destruction and violations and the violence which is being mostly like uh, executed is still like obviously by like imperialist states. You know, like the direct violence of Russia and Ukraine, the direct violence of the United States, still in many parts of the world. You no, know, so so. Uh, uh, when it comes to like you know violence being perpetrated by states and sort of their incentive structures and whatever, but and then I would like to make the point that okay perhaps it may be the worst one, but still the way we talk and the way we put this focus on it uh, is very very harmful uh, 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 not only in under, to understanding it but to to pushing the ideas that we must like sort of destroy it uh, invade it and whatever. Yeah, so I think I mean we might disagree on how how bad it is or. or or we do agree that it's bad to an extent, but then I think since we still have limited time, it's quite important to like focus on uh, the fact that it is bad in there for the people living in there and it can be better. And Nois, you mentioned two things. You mentioned the unification of the Koreas and the imperialism of the United States. Uh, could you wanna like expand a little bit on how both of these things could go around and how could they exactly help North Korea? Okay, so okay, so maybe now I'll quickly go through then the sort of economic aspect and the economic history of North Korea to try to understand it. So okay, after the Korean War and after it was solidified that there's going to be these two states, South and North Korea, South Korea was like a puppet. Uh, first of all, it was a puppet government of the United States very directly um, uh, and, 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 and got large amounts of Western investment. 
North Korea tried to build its economy in a sort of planned economy sort of fashion, and they uh, put they had a lot of trade with the Soviet Union and then with China. But then there were also difficulties because of the Sino-Soviet split, and they were like more sort of in line with the, with the Soviet Union, I guess, uh, e- economically and whatever. But what is really, really important is that after the 1990s and throughout this whole whole period, you know, ever since the DPRK has been established, of course, it has been like sanctioned by the United States. So it means that it cannot trade on a global level with any like U.S. allies, right? So which is like basically the rest of the world, you know, especially during the like Cold War period. Of course, there were the, the, the non-aligned countries as well, but... Uh, so 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 uh, it had uh, a structure which completely based itself economically on the Soviet Union and it had no international trade after the Soviet Union collapsed of course there was as I already said huge economic crisis in North Korea but it really really gets like what w- what gets going also the sort of a lot of the economic deficiencies that North Korea has is because it is like single-handedly the most uh, economically sanctioned state in the entire world it has the largest blockade around it it is the most difficult state to trade with it is the most difficult state for to, to which can like have active transactions and whatever and I think this really also puts it in context as to why it is so underdeveloped in the current moment. Of course, I would agree that there are significant internal deficiencies within, because I think what has also happened, and I think what is interesting is to put it on a broader post-USSR socialist world context, because uh, they, when the USSR failed, it was not like the only socialist state in the world, and it also like, uh, it had, uh, uh, there was China, there was Vietnam, there was Cuba, there were some African experiments d- during the time, uh, uh, more allied states as well, uh, uh, Laos then, uh, and, and also Korea. And what I think is really interesting is that like, okay, so China went one way where they liberalized the economy, uh, Dengism, etc. Vietnam went uh, uh, like pretty much the same way. Um, and then like Cuba basically was also very similar to the to the North Korea in like its like position in the world. It also was very blockaded, also very dependent on the Soviet Union, also faced a huge economic crisis in the 1990s. Cuba tried to open itself up and open itself up for tourism and also made some experiments with liberalizing the economy and they're continuing to, to do so. North Korea went into this extreme nationalistic mode of absolute uh, radical self-deficiency uh, where they like they say, okay, the rest of the world is not going to trade with us. They also, I think, sort of now perceive China, Russia, and, you know, and the United States as all like sort of imperial powers. And I I really think that they really want to like just be on their own, you know, Uh, and that's like the main driving, like even ideological force of the leadership and of the country. Um, and, And so I think this has really did like this ideological sort of way and uh, the consolidation of power through these means have really led to internal economic deficiencies as well. Um, so yes, uh, I think this is also what I uh, what I will, I, wanted, I wanted to say. So there's no bright future for North Korea. Ah, then on the unification point. Okay, wait. Okay, what I wanted to say about the unification is that, like, from the North Korean perspective, there is no possibility of unification. Uh, with the United States troops like stationed in South Korea because that's like just perceived as like no there being one Korea and then one part of Korea is being occupied by an imperial power by the US you know it's never gonna fly with them it's never uh, like the the denuclearization demilitarization of the region etc must happen like I don't think like it 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 shouldn't be like US mediated right I think they should just move back out I think this is where the sort of really where conversations about unification have to happen Um, but Unification, nobody wants it. I think this is really the problem. Nobody wants it. Like uh, the United States doesn't really want it because they want just to have a, a South Korea and they also kind of want to have a North Korea there. It's kind of useful to them. It's really easy for them then to push a lot of their like military into that region and etc. Um, South Korea doesn't want it because it would be really expensive like to pay for it, I think also, because like they would have to as absorb the North Korean economic system, which would be, I think, really difficult for them. I think this, like West East Germany, which would also really be difficult for the North Koreans as well. Uh, China and Russia, of course, just want like, you know, regional bulwarks against US influence. China doesn't want the US troops at its border. The Russia doesn't want U.S. troops at its border. So if like a unified Korea happens under South Korean terms, 
under Western terms, like China and Russia are really not like happy with it. I think like maybe possibly the North Koreans are the really ones who want unification, but they also have the sort of like uh, distorted vision of how unification is going to come about of the like, you know, glorious liberation and freeing of the, of the South Korea, which uh, I don't think now is really possible. But yeah. No, I don't think there are chances for unification soon. I think there are chances for military escalation soon. But like, I mean, I think, I think that, I think it could turn out still better. And I think what we must still agitate for as like anti-imperialists is to sort of you know, say that the United States is not playing a good role in the region. They're not trying to solve any conflicts and uh, perhaps they are only exacerbating the problems that we have and, 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 and to make a point of this. So. Okay, awesome. So I think that's where we'll end this part of the podcast, the discussion. And then thank you very much, Noise, for telling us more about North Korea. I think I learned a lot. And yeah, we'll move on to the monologues, the rants. So now we're moving on to the next part of the podcast, which is the rant, which we know you guys love. So Vishwa, I heard you're talking about your local issue today. What is it? Yeah, I mean, more of a national issue, but um, it's about Canadian healthcare. From when we're young, Canadians are told that we should be proud of our healthcare system. After all, it's it's free, universal, high quality, and most importantly, better than that crappy and unequal American system. And I mean, for the most part, I agree with everything that I just said. But the problem is, all that pride in our healthcare system goes away the second that we actually need medical care from our four hour average emergency room wait times to see a doctor to the 1.5 year long wait to get knee replacements, our healthcare system is just fundamentally broken. And to put the final nail in the coffin, the COVID pandemic happened. All those numbers that I just gave you, those are from 2019, before the COVID pandemic completely obliterated our healthcare system, forced us to cancel countless surgeries, cancer screenings, etc., etc. The COVID pandemic basically took these existing issues in our healthcare system and magnified them by 1000. In today's rant, I'm going to be talking about uh, the flaws within the Canadian healthcare system and really examining them and um, basically talk about why our much celebrated universal healthcare system is in some serious need of reform. And I'm going to present to you what I find to be some useful solutions, though, though completely incomplete, and introduce you to these basically pseudo idea of, of, of some sort of false morality that's blocking a lot of these reforms from being completed and from a lot of people's lives from getting better. So let's talk about the flaws within our healthcare system. I already talked a lot about, um, you know, knee surgery wait times, cancer screening wait times, I was actually just talking to my mom when I was researching this. My mom is a, is a doctor and has been working in Canada for around 18 years um, within our healthcare system. So she knows this system intimately. Um, she basically told me something that completely shocked me. It, it takes two months between when you go into your family doctor and suspect a cancer. There's a lump that you, know, you think is cancer. And having that being screened and having that being biopsied. And it takes two months from that to actually seeing a specialist. And this could literally be ma a matter of life and death. What my mom was telling me is, look, while it's unlikely that this cancer that could be surgically removed would develop into some sort of metastatic cancer um, over two months, the patient's actual sickness and condition could deteriorate rapidly and they'd be unable to respond to things like chemotherapy, unable to withstand those treatments. They'd get so much sicker. I also talked about the, the knee replacements, like it takes up to one and a half years. The average wait time is around six months. And remember, a knee replacement is not something that's like an emergency care. It's not like, I mean, obviously, when you, when you have a, your hospitals over, overflowing as a result of COVID, you're not going to make time for like a knee replacement. But it is something that's a significant impact on your quality of life. If you don't have your knee replaced, you can't walk. And if you're an older person that can't walk, like... That, you know, leads to a whole bunch of other healthcare difficulties. 
Um, and again, I'm, in talking to my mother, she basically told me something that I think most Canadians did not realize. Even before the COVID pandemic, during flu seasons, our emergency rooms and our hospitals were operating at 110% capacity. We were filled to the brim, even at those points in time. And when COVID came along, of course, a much more dangerous, much more virulent, and much um, much more faster spreading disease than the flu, our hospitals simply couldn't take it. And there was just, you know, a massive overwhelming of our healthcare system. And of course, this isn't unique to Canada. All the world's healthcare systems were strained as a result of this. But this is something that I'm bringing up in saying that, look, there may be some virtue in not running your system at capacity. And this brings forward the, the fundamental problem with a completely universal healthcare system in which there is zero room for a private sector at all. Because it's the government spending a taxpayer's money, they're forced to run that system on the most tight budget constraints as possible. Because if you wanna actually run that system properly, you're gonna have to raise people's taxes and people are not gonna be happy with that. This is a politically unpopular move. Uh, and the reality is, yeah, a welfare state is a politically popular move, but you know what's also a pol politically popular move? Cutting taxes. And those two things simply cannot function at the same time. So in order for our healthcare system to operate at a capacity that's not basically stretching it to the absolute brim every time there's any sort of minor surge, you would have to increase taxes, which is something that Canadian politicians are just not gonna do. So there is this fundamental clash within the universal healthcare system. How do we address that? And my solution to this is some degree of extended private sector involvement. This looks like the expansion of walk-in clinics. Allow doctors to just simply, you know, set up their clinics to run minor surgeries, like knee replacements, for example. Um, allow companies to set up, you know, labs and screenings and things like that. And not do that on like a contract basis. Just allow open competition for those things so that people can get access wherever they want, whenever they want for a reasonable price. You know, screenings, tests, MRIs, uh, CT scans, etc., things like that. There's no reason that we need to be conducting those within the hospital system like we're currently doing. Uh, the wait list to get an MRI is something ridiculous too. It takes months. Look, if you have the money for it, why don't we just allow people to allow people to go there? And this means that we don't have massive wait lists for these things, which means that people that can't afford to get a private MRI the next day or the next week or whatever, they just move up the wait list because, you know, someone else is willing to pay for it. And look, this already happens anyway. Basically, uber wealthy can Canadians already go to the United States to get their CT scans, MRIs, knee surgeries, etc. But that's only the super, super wealthy Canadians that can afford to pay like ten, fifteen thousand dollars to do that. If we just do that locally, I mean, look, we could we could be just fine. Um, of course, you can't ban someone from traveling abroad to do it, but you can open up that competition and open up that access to Canadians to get that treatment at home. Pretty much every other country in the world that has a public healthcare system also has some form of private sector involvement. Canada is somewhat unique in the sense of developed countries without a private healthcare system. I think that this lack of, of um, this, you know, reduce, reducing the burden on for elective procedures within the public system allows the government also to invest that money that they put in, into these elective procedures into the more critical things, such as emergency care, such as um, hospital care, such as ventilators, etc., etc. So who are the people getting in the way of this? Basically, it is so ingrained within this Canadian psyche to take pride in our healthcare system unquestioningly, especially in comparison to the U.S. healthcare system, that basically any suggestion that our system isn't the world's best or the perfect system is treated as complete taboo by politicians. My suggestion that we should expand private clinics to conduct scans, screenings, and elective surgeries, that's the Americanization of Canada, greedy cap American capitalism coming to Canada, two-tiered care coming to Canada. Basically, American is used as this sort of pejorative term um, for things that Canadians don't like about American capitalism. But 
basically pretty much every other developed nation, including the, the vaunted social democracies of Scandinavia that Canada looks up to, have both pu public and some private sector involvement in healthcare. But Canadians seem to think that some private involvement in healthcare is uniquely American. I think that people are way too caught up in the phony morality of this to actually see through the issue. Equality means nothing if everything is equally terrible. I would rather have some degree of inequality where a rich person can wait three weeks for their knee surgery, a middle-class person can wait six weeks for their knee surgery, and a poor person waits nine weeks, than have all of them wait 12 weeks because our healthcare system is so overburdened. In the end, all of their outcomes improve, and I think that is something that is for the good. Moral of the story is this. I like public health care. I think it is something that Canada has done right. With that being said, I'm not delusional. I don't think our system is perfect. I think that we could improve on it vastly. And coming out of this pandemic, especially with the surgical and screening backlogs, we need to introduce some sort of reforms to make sure that we are actually a functioning country. All I ask to my fellow Canadians is don't let this wishy-washy fake ideas of morality get in the way of saving people's lives. Oh, thank you, Vishwa. Uh, it's really also very interesting for me to hear about like Canadian issues specifically. But also, I think like what you say about morals and stuff is also a bit about partisanship and not necessarily partisanship, but just staying true and like staying very loyal to what you believe in. Um, because I feel like if people really advocate for public health care, you know, they might not pass, walk past the standard of like uh, introducing privatized healthcare because they just yeah. care so much about having it public. And like, I don't have enough knowledge about this and I don't know the nuances to talk about this. But uh, since there's still like a clear money um, reallocation that's happening, I just wonder why not prioritize for Canada to just improve the public healthcare system as much as possible because I do believe that we can make it more efficient rather than you know, mix them up and, and have private healthcare too? I mean, the answer to that is, is simply pragmatic. I don't think that Canadians, especially at a time of economic uncertainty like right now, are willing to have their income taxes raised um, to invest in the, in the in the public system. I think that there needs to be, of course, I, 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 like, I do believe that there, the public system needs reform, but I think that that reform needs to come with the resources that are at their disposal and needs to be focused on the emergency and critical care aspects of it that were, I mean, to me, are the primary benefits of having a public healthcare system is strong emergency that you don't have to pay for and strong critical care ICUs that you don't have to pay for. I don't think it needs to be for knee surgeries, cancer screenings, et cetera, et cetera. I think that the private sector can do that a lot better. And those resources that the public system gives to um, those non-emergency cares can be better spent within um, more urgent and acute care. All right, Milda, what are you ranting about today? Yeah, so I'm going to talk about two very contradicting ideas. I think uh, one is the military, which I absolutely despise. And the second one is our woman, who I adore. So yeah, before I actually start, I want to give a shout out to my debate coach, Urtara Davichuta, because she was the one who introduced me to this topic by giving a presentation on it. And when I heard it, I was so in awe, but I was also so sad to hear all of these things. So I just wanted to share it with you today. So basically, today I'm going to talk about um, how men are the military, but women are in the military. And this sentence that I just said basically you know, uh, explains that women right now who are serving in the army face a lot of issues ranging from sexual assault, just straight up sexism, but also simply segregation. And it's way harder for them to rise through the ranks and to like make a career in the military without giving up their femininity, which is a huge issue that I'll talk about later on. But basically, a lot of what we hear from the feminist movement, especially a lot of liberal feminists, is that, look, Okay, 
So there's just not enough women in the military if we have these issues, right? So we should be advocating for women to go achieve their dreams and to go explore and, and break gender stereotypes by going into the military. So we will have like a more, a more gender, gender equal military and all of these problems will sort of solve by itself. But I, I, I argue that that's not the case. And basically that having more women in the military will not change the patriarchal structure of it and will ultimately just end up hurting more women mentally and possibly physically. So overall in my rant, I will not be like analyzing my pacifist views, maybe in later episodes, I will not be analyzing why supporting such structures as the military means that you support war and killing uh, of people. But I will basically argue that women who voluntarily are thinking of going in the military or are kind of pushed by outside forces to do so simply should choose not to. And there's two main reasons that I'm going to talk about today. The first one is sexualization. So it's quite like funny how overall the representation that we have of female combatants is like extremely sexualized in the media. If you go on Pinterest right now and you type in woman in the military, you will definitely get articles such as, and I quote, 21 of the hottest patriotic women that currently serve in the US Army. Or you will find Google images of female combatants wearing heels when they march. Um, so, so, you know, this kind of still huge gender gap and like how we treat women and men not equally in the military, right? But also when you come into the military as a woman, as like a very, when you live in this very patriarchal structure, very hierarchical, in a big hierarchy in the military, you're faced with a sort of um, segregation that you're either, and I'm gonna be explicit, I'm sorry, but this is needed for scientific purposes, <laughs> that you're either a whore or you're a bitch. And let me explain this. So in any environment, I think that many women have experienced this and know what I'm talking about. This happens even in schools, businesses, companies, which are more patriarchal to their nature, right? Especially like the military. So like, if you're a woman who's like uh, very stereotypical, I guess, or traditional, you're nice to people, you like laugh at men's jokes, you let them you know, kind of talk to you, you're kind of easygoing, whatever, whatever, and you adhere to what they want to hear, um, then you're too easy. You're not wifey material enough. So you're kind of divided <laughs> to the whore spectrum of the of a woman, right? But if you're cold, if you don't smile a lot, if you don't really listen to what men say or don't laugh at their jokes, if you call out men for like the stupid things that they do, then you're like a bitch. And then no one's gonna wanna be friends with you, right? So especially in patriarchal like um, uh, kind of environments, this is the division that women face. And this really happens in the military too. So like I, I even found a quote of a female combatant which said, I sometimes accept comments about other women which may enable assault. Do I accept these behaviors in order to become one of them, that being the men, or do I say it is not acceptable and risk being seen as a bitch? So essentially for a woman, since I think in any case, like as a woman, if when you go to the military, you have a goal, right? And for a lot of women, that goal is to like, rise through the ranks, like make a career, like have some kind of changes in the system that you can make. But in order to actually rise through the ranks, you have to succumb to the structure. You have to become one of the lads, one of the men who are extremely sexist most of the time, or you will simply be divided into the, like these two categories. So you cannot really be yourself, right? But there's also horrible rape culture that is in the military. I read about Israel's military, and as you know, women have a mandatory serving period in the Israel army, and uh, there's a lot of issues there. For example, the Israel Defense Force data shows that in 2020, there were more than 1,500 reports of sexual assault, whereas in 2019, there were 1,239. So as you see, it's kind of increasing, and think about all of the instances where it's not reported, right? So this is the effect of sexualization and this kind of gendered problem uh, that we have with the genders in the military. But the second reason is this militarized masculinity that we have, which of course has, has been built over years of 
the patriarchal structure. And basically, especially in the United States, you can see that in the military that there's this very big lad and honorary man culture, which embraces toxic masculinity and having that kind of strong man approach to, to life. So the general theory is that the more male a woman's physical appearance is, that being like having short hair, having no makeup, being just uh, dressed in a non-feminine way, the more her femininity is sort of masks, the more she reduces her disturbance to the male social cohesion in the military and is able to kind of rise through the ranks or not really be treated weirdly, right? Anthony King writes in his book, The Female Combat Soldier, that basically, somewhat par paradoxically, in order even to be sisters in the military, they have to be men, right? The military has yet to develop an unproblematic concept of femininity that recognizes women as women. So essentially, as a woman, if you enter through the military right now, you will inevitably face these structures of either oppression or just not being able to be yourself. So ask yourself, like, is this something that you want to face, right? And it takes absolutely, so it's generally unfeasible or it takes decades uh, for a woman to rise through the ranks in this kind of structure, right? But I think what is especially interesting, and I will not get into this very broadly, that like the roots of feminism are in pacifism. That's another reason why I think if you consider yourself a liberated woman or a feminist, it's quite uh, weird to support structures as the military. I mean, there are certain re resolutions done which are made, uh, which are made by women advocates and activists that push for uh, war relief or the overall objection of war. Right, um, but I will not talk a lot about this because I feel like I will ramble for like ten minutes. Right, so. But what's, what's kind of sad is that all of these efforts for feminists to talk about uh, the objection of war or to talk about how uh, women entering the military is bad, all of these kind of things have been co-opted by the international system and like largely depoliticized. Because now what I hear a lot of uh, men especially and what a lot of politicians say is that, look, Women have a seat at the table, right? So they're represented already. We don't have issues anymore. And that is simply false. It, there is such a more nuanced and complex way in how women are not represented or like face oppression in these structures. And it is simply not enough to have a seat at a table or to have an opinion. We have to actually be solving issues uh, way more deeply, right? Um, a possible... Like, I, I talked a lot of negative things. So now I want to talk about a positive example of women in the military. And I can give uh, an example of Kurdistan or Rojava. So basically, as you know, uh, the People's Councils began to, like, be set up in areas with sizable Kurdish communities in 2005. Uh, and, and basically, right now, the, the Kurdish freedom movement is happening. And what they did is they introduced this concept of democratic confederalism, which is essentially like self-governing communities and like a bottom-up approach of democracy. So what's happening in those societies is that they have this kind of approach of genealogy, which means no society is free without free women. So they kind of, so unlike socialism, basically, women's liberation is like the primary goal of them and not the byproduct of the aim for political autonomy. So all of the women fighting for Kurdistan's uh, military are actually proving how, you know, it can be a positive example because the aim of women's liberation is primary and not like a byproduct, uh, a byproduct of other things. So yeah, I think uh, this is basically the moral of the story. Um, and, and yeah, and, and I hope you learned some information from that. <laughs> Wow, that, again, Milda, I've said this to you before, I think that you're giving monologues that feminist theory professors would be extremely proud of. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, it's, I mean, it's true. Uh, my question for you is, is basically this. Um, from your talk, I mean, I understand that there's systemic issues with how the military is structured and women um, 
you know, basically inherently being uh, set back in, in, in the, within those structures. My question for you is, is this, basically your solution to that, would that be, you know, basically discouraging women from joining the military? Because if you think about it, that may have an adverse effect on the women that are already there. I feel like no matter which way you go about it, there's going to be some, there's going to be some problems. If there's less women in the military, that means the women that are there are faced with basically these same issues, but completely magnified. Or do you think that a potential solution would be actively, you know, aiming for gender parity in, um, in like officer ranks, for example, like captains and generals and things like that. It, with women actually occupying seats of power rather than simply being in the in the military. Do you think that a push for gender parity in that regard would be a possible solution? Or do you think that the military is just too broken of a of a structure for that to have any sort of effect? I think that this is a great but a very hard question to answer. Um, generally, yeah, I think we should be discouraging women and <laughs> overall people from entering the military. I don't I think we should be educating them as much as possible on why is it a negative force in every single way of life and, and the world. But uh, for the women that do still want to stay in the military, this is a hard task. I don't even know, to be honest. Like, I think we should definitely be talking way more about sexual violence that happens in the military, giving resources to women to feel more safe. Of course, that needs to be happening. But um, yeah. I think we should be focusing on a whole different narrative. So that is it, guys. That's it for episode four of Wake Up Call. Thank you so much for sticking around to the end and listening. I hope you learned something new about North Korea, about Canada, and about women in the military. If you have any ideas for future episodes or for this one, please comment them below. Yeah, and um, thank you so much uh, for Nayas for joining us giving a basically a non-mainstream perspective about North Korea that we don't get to hear a lot. Uh, and I think that was extremely valuable, both for me, myself personally, and I think it will be valuable uh, for, I hope it was valuable for you as the audience uh, to take that away. Uh, as always, uh, we encourage you, please subscribe to our podcast, our YouTube channel, our and uh, follow us on Instagram for some exclusive content and things like that. Um, and yeah, I hope you enjoyed the show and we'll see you again in two weeks.